rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. This is Bob Hutchins. Welcome to another episode of Rumors of Grace. Today, sitting across the table from me is Brandy Kellett. Brandy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Or actually, I should correct myself. That's Dr. Brandy Kellett for me, I think. Brandy is a longtime friend, first of all, so we're going to have a lot of fun today on the podcast. But I just want to set up your educational background because I think it will serve as the platform for some things we want to talk about. So Brandy received her MA and her PhD in Caribbean and American literature and post-colonial studies at the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida. That's my old stomping grounds, if you didn't know. Having taught at the University of Miami, uh, you also currently teach at Lipscomb University here in Nashville. So, Brandy, uh, this is a long time coming. Uh, You were somebody that I've been wanting to have on the show for a while because we always have the most interesting conversations. So you're a native Tennessean, right? I am. I grew up in East Tennessee on a big farm there, about 100 acres. I and was it in Knoxville or right outside of Knoxville? Outside of Knoxville. Um, and that upbringing, of course, deeply shaped the way I see the world because I quickly learned that no one is just one thing, um, mm. including me. So I grew up in sort of small town, rural Tennessee in the Roan County area um, on a big farm, but I was educated at a sort of a private wealthy school in Knoxville. So I would drive in to town every day and, you know, hobnob and learn and grow and then go back to the farm. And I had very different groups of friends growing up and very different environments and communities. That's, that sounds kind of counterintuitive. I'm not getting it. So you grow up in a farm in Tennessee and your comment is, I've learned to see and all about all kinds of different people. Ta- explain that a little bit deeper for me because I'm not getting it. I hear that confusion. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> um, I think that when I when I've I've been trying to think about the way I would describe my upbringing and how it sort of influenced and has sort of shaped who I am. And I think from a very early age. Um, I'll use a snobby word here, but I I think I organically experienced intersectionality, which Mm. is kind of a hit hop Mm. word right now, Um, in so many areas of my life that I was naturally drawn to understand that no one is just one thing, that binaries sort of destroy and reduce Mm us. And so when I think about my sort of faith and my communities and the way that I want to raise my family and sort of orient my life, um, I want to avoid, I have a, a pretty visceral reaction against any sort of rhetoric or um, w- way of living that assumes that most people are good or bad mm-hmm. or most people are one thing or most people can mm-hmm. be described with sort of one sentence. Mm-hmm. I just haven't found that to be true in my life. And so although I was surrounded racially probably by sort of one group of people. And although most people I encountered uh, adhere to some level of sort of Christian faith, my the beautiful thing is that I spent a lot of time with really crazy rich people, and I spent a lot of time with really, really poor people. Mm. And I spent a lot of time with really, you know, selfish people, and I spent a lot of time with really generous people. Mm. And there's not, a, there's not a black and white way to divide them up. Mm-hmm. Well... Uh, it's almost um, it's almost kind of passe to even say it, but um, we're living in a in a day and time, especially in our country, where everything is very black and white, and people are polarized, and people seem, at least the media tries to tell us that that we are in tribes, and those tribe tribal lines are very definite. Um, so I think what you're saying um, is very pertinent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that 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 probably you have an answer. Uh, I think one of the things that I've tried to do in this podcast is uh, sit down and talk to people that are very different and that see things uniquely uh, or who have seen things differently or who have spoken with other people that are very different like yourself. Because I think that's one of the solutions. Would you agree? 
I would totally agree. I think that uh, we need, you know, it's a multi-layered problem and it's a multi-layered uh, solution that's going to be required. But I think that one of the things that encourages me is that we need people like you who are expanding our ability to hear narratives of other people's lives, hmm. right? I hmm. think that in my experience, um, even in growing up around some people who have pretty fixed views on how the world works and how God works and how politics works and who's good and who's bad mm-hmm. and all that sort of thing. I have seen uh, people be incredibly generous when they are face to face with a human being who is different than them mm-hmm. and who needs help. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen people who, you know, are, are very sort of polarized politically and who have no problem demonizing a gigantic group of people one-on-one they'll give you the shirt off their back. Mm. They're incredibly generous. And so in some ways, I don't buy it. I just don't buy that we are, and maybe I don't want to buy the idea that we are deep down selfish, only Mm. out for us, that there is no sort of um, shared purposefulness, that there is no, uh, you know, that we're not tied together in a mutual garment of destiny, as Dr. King said. Like, (laughs) I just believe all that, you know, hook, line, and sinker. And so the, because I've seen it, I've seen really selfish people who are committed to their own power and their own advancement be really generous when it's one person. Mm. Now, if you mention systems of inequity to them, they retreat to their corner, you know, and they, they're immediately polarized again. Don't you think the, the problem comes in when the system becomes their identity versus the, the humanity being your identity? Mm. That's really interesting. Yeah, I do think that that I do think that it's easy for each of us to grab on to a totalizing identity. And we don't just do it to each other. We do it for ourselves. Right. Mm -hmm. Because it makes us feel I mean, tribalism works and has persisted because it does provide a sense of community. Mm -hmm. It provides a sense of belonging, protection, protection. It allows you to sort of blame your, you know, trials and troubles on some other enemy out there. Mm -hmm. Um, It gives you a space to land and a space to sort of tell your story. Um, But it's also deeply uh, evil, I think. Mm. I think that we are, um, I don't, I don't sort of adhere to a way of living that, that increases my proximity to different kinds of people because I think it's just a nice thing to do. I do it because my own perspective is incredibly limited. I'm mm-hmm. one person. Right. And I, I, I deeply believe in sort of diverse interactions, not just because it's nice, but because I need it. It strengthens my perspective. It challenges me and improves me in ways that I couldn't do on my own. You know, And so I think that tribalism is sort of the collective version of extreme independence and sort of, you know, mm-hmm. I'm an island. I don't need anybody else. And I just think ultimately that fails us. It does. It does. And I've always said that I truly believe, and it may be simplistic, but I have yet to find anyone who can give me a rational argument of why it's not true, is that we're basically all the same and we all want the same. I don't care if you're way on the left or way on the right or in the center or wherever. You want uh, to live somewhere that's safe. You want a roof over your head. You want your kids to be happy. You want them to be educated. Um, you know, you want to put food on your table. You want to help people if they need it around you for the most part. I don't know of many human beings who would disagree with that. And so um, I was speaking with a rabbi friend of mine, and he says the problem is is that we're trained to always start these conversations screaming at each other in extremes Mm -hmm. versus saying, let's start with what we agree with. It's like, no one wants to destroy the environment. No one wants to live with polluted water, but we start with global warming. Like, why do we start there? What do we all agree on? Everyone wants clean water. No one wants to have wear a mask because it's too smoggy and smoky outside. I don't know any human being that wants that. Mm-hmm. So let's start there and let's work together. It seems pretty simple, right? <laughs> it does seem really simple, but of course it doesn't work. And part of that is that part of that is that we're we're all living um, as victims of the systems that we've supported and that have grown up around us, right? And so, like in the United States, you know, in Nashville, Tennessee, we live in a really segregated 
uh, city, and we live in uh, places where extreme poverty are totally sort of protected and ghettoized from extreme wealth. And so there's no, it's very hard to actually have interaction with people who are really different than you. Mm. Um, of course, I think that deep down, you could walk into any coffee shop um, or corner market anywhere, and you could find lots of differences in the people around you and lots mm-hmm. of similarities in the people around you, to your point, right? We all sort of want the same things. Um, but I, I think I think we need to strengthen the muscles required <laughs> to teach us to hear a perspective that is different than ours mm-hmm. and see it not as a confrontation, mm-hmm. but as a chance to sort of learn and grow, right? To replace judgment with curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, the great news is that I do think that these are sort of metaphorical muscles that we can develop. I don't think that we're, you know, destined for polarization and hate speech and all that kind of junk. Right. Um, I think there's always a chance to get better. Um, but if we don't actually spend time interacting with people um, and exploring topics that make us uncomfortable, then we have very little chance of actually getting anywhere. Mm. And I think this is true. To your point, it's easy to say, Let's figure out carbon emissions as step one. That's probably mm-hmm. not a great place to start, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, instead, could we talk about the way that, you know, nature increases, like, mental and emotional stability mm-hmm. in people? Yeah, um, and if that's true, then let's try to make sure we keep that around <laughs> as yeah, much as possible. absolutely. Um, but even more than that, I don't know how you feel in your sort of daily interaction, but even when you're with people who feel kind of like your people and you mm-hmm. feel really close to sure. them and, and, and you would go to bat for them and that sort of thing. Um, many of us, even in those spaces, have learned to sort of silent, silently avoid topics that make people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And so if we don't do it with our closest friends where we know we're safe um, and then we're also sort of destined through the systems that we've built around us to not spend time with people who are really different than we are, then what chance do we have to actually interact with and learn to sort of stay at the table even when you feel uncomfortable and someone disagrees with you? Yeah, and that's where you the creativity dies, new, new forward technology dies, uh, invention, progress dies when you get rid of many voices. And, di- and diverse voices. That's where those things are born. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, the, the collaborative, the beauty of collaborative effort and thinking um, is most realized when there are many different facets at the table, right? Yeah, for sure. Before we get any deeper than that, because I have some other things I want to talk to you about this, I want to backtrack for a minute and talk about you know, how you got from Knoxville to Miami to studying what you did and choosing the path that you've taken uh, in education and some of your other work that you've done. So talk to me about, okay, you grew up in Knoxville. Uh, Did you go to UT or no? No, I went to Wake Forest. Wake Forest. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then what made you decide to go to to Miami and get your uh, MA and PhD? So I did literature and Latin classical thinking at at Wake Forest. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I love, I feel like I was exposed there mostly to British and American literature. But I was always found myself drawn to stories of sort of the underdog Mm -hmm. or to stories of, you can feel it sometimes when you know that a story is not represented very fully, right? Or when there's a huge... uh, missing piece maybe to the puzzle. Um, and I realized, and unfortunately, most of our sort of educational circles and certainly in Tennessee, even in secondary education with our state standards, um, voices of color and even female voices are often sort of underrepresented. Mm. And that's changing in a, in a great way. Um, but that was true even of my education at Wake. And some of that is that I picked my own classes and I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but even with a great education, I realized... I'm not really hearing from all the voices that matter in the world. Um, And part of that, I think, is there is a direct line in the way that I see it from my childhood because I realized that um, the the sort of, you know, ultra-wealthy Knoxville uh, elite who were having buildings named after them had a very similar work ethic to my, you know, extended family, none of whom went to college, and that... One is not more successful than the other. One might achieve greater financial wealth, you know, than Mm -hmm. the other. But I learned to say and to really see the world from a lens that helped me go, hey, there are people that are not going to be on the front page and their stories still matter. And so Mm -hmm. that sort of drive, I think, was always in me. 
we moved to Miami practically because I was married and my husband was going to medical school um, in South Florida. And so we moved there and I uh, was working for a nonprofit and a ministry um, with high schoolers and, uh, but really was hungry for teaching. I, I came to see that like teaching is sort of who I am. Mm-hmm. Um, and the University of Miami has an incredible uh, program. And as I had stumbled into it, I had never heard of Caribbean studies and certainly not a post-colonial framework for seeing the world, but Miami happens to be one of the sort of centers for that sort of thinking because so many expats from the West Indies mm-hmm. settle in Miami and, and work and write there. And I just fell in love with the writing. Mm. I fell mm. in love with reading stories from people whose stories had been written wrongly for them mm. for hundreds of years. Give me, give me an example of that. So the colonial endeavor and from the you know 1400s through the 1800s, five major Western European powers settled the globe. And they took land and conquered land and sometimes partnered with, but often just enslaved and sort of uh, pillaged uh, other places and sort of owned it for their people, for their wealth. Um, and post-colonialism is the study of how those places would write their own narrative, mm. how they would tell the story. So we have, um, you know, narratives from Britain because that's also where the publishing industry was really uh, headquartered forever. Um, and they got to tell the story of what colonialism looked like and what, you know, something like Heart of Darkness from Joseph Conrad um, talks about how natives in Africa are really in a dehumanized uh, manner, he describes mm. them. Then we get someone uh, writing texts like Things Fall Apart, which is sort of a response to Heart of Darkness that just says, um, here's what happens when another power comes in and imposes their culture and their way of being in the world and their religion and their education uh, and their politics and their military on another country. Um, And so that, that sort of effort to write back into the metropole and into the power structure is just the the richest literature that I know of. Hmm. So as you were there and, and in Miami and you're starting to study, was there a major uh, shift going on in your mind and heart as far as the way you saw the world, or was this a natural progression of the of of the trajectory that you're already going? I think both. I mean, the in some ways, I can go back and sort of manufacture that that's the trajectory that I was on. But I, I mean, I'm a you know white redneck girl from Tennessee. <laughs> like, it's crazy to me that I was, you know, at these scholarly conferences speaking, you know, that I got a seat at the table, basically, mm-hmm. with these incredibly strong uh, West Indian women and men and the way that they saw the world. You know, I, I, there are many academics who end up sort of colonizing those academic spaces mm-hmm. by saying, well, I'm white and from America, so my voice, I get a, you know, I get a seat at the table no matter what. And so there's a dance that I've had to do to try to not be that girl, um, you know, in any environment, because a lot of the ways that we can use our power, I think, uh, in a collaborative way in these spaces, in these diverse spaces, as we teach ourselves and others to reach across lines of difference, is to be quiet, you know, Mm. to elevate other voices. Mm. And so there's always a tension, I feel, of when should I speak and when should I not speak um, in any of these spaces. but it was also a drastic change for me to recognize that systemic racism uh, that the, exists and destroys everywhere it goes. Mm. Um, what was your PhD um, paper on? Um, I wrote about uh, a developing a diasporic consciousness, mm. which is basically just an awareness of your place in the diaspora for, mm-hmm. for those who were enslaved, so the African diaspora. Um, and I looked at it from a Caribbean perspective and an American perspective. So I looked at sort of West Indian slavery and American slavery and the legacy that slavery left on these lives and the way that they sort of wrote back into mm-hmm. and resisted mm-hmm. and found meaningful lines of hope to pass on to their families um, in that way. Interesting. And so for that, it's been so beautiful to me because the, and this is where I'll say that the other turn that I took is thinking about my own sort of faith understanding. It was a hard season to recognize Mm. that the church that I loved so deeply is, is often the bad actor Mm. in these histories of colonialism. Right. The church was obsessed with its own power and authority and wealth 
and they made horrible alliances with um, political forces and with monarchies uh, under the guise of sort of evangelicalism, Mm -hmm. you know, and spreading the gospel, Mm -hmm. um, and they destroyed people. Mm. So so you're there, and how long were you there in Miami? Five years. Okay. And then you decided to come back to Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Was that a little bit of a homecoming for you? Was it a culture shock? Was it, what what was that experience like? Terrifying. Okay. Terrifying. I was in Miami. We just personally had friends from all walks of life. Mm -hmm. You know, our communities were multiracial and multiethnic and uh, different socioeconomics. It was um, different backgrounds, nationalities. It's just easy to be around Mm -hmm. other people there, as you know. Um, And I was really terrified that we would be walking back into sort of unacknowledged, racially tense and sort of racialized um, settings uh, and that was my greatest fear, mm. was the thinking about the racism. From the faith perspective, I'd, and I couldn't really articulate it until later, um, the beauty about living in South Florida is that Christianity has no sort of street cred. Like mm-hmm. there's no, you don't get any sort of cultural points or power right. or capital from being a Christian. And there's very little cultural Christianity there, too. Totally. And Mm -hmm. so if you found a person who identified as a believer or you found a person who, you know, went to church even on Sunday, it usually meant something to them. Mm -hmm. Like it really, it usually suggested that there was sort of a a life approach that might resonate in some way. And here you just can't depend on those markers at all. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I was nervous about those two things. I think that Nashville 10 years ago, um... Very different than what it is now. Very different than what it is now. It was the perfect place for us to come back to in the South. I think if we were going to move back to the Southeast, this is the best place we could have moved. Nashville at that time had enough sort of like funky, artsy influence Mm -hmm. that people... People knew enough to know that maybe the way they did things was not the best way. Like that mm-hmm. influence, that counter influence, sort of sure. thrived here. I think a at that bit point, o- uh, openness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit of openness, um, and so that that made me feel like okay, I can. And it's even expanded since here. then. I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I think we've. I, I think there's still an old Nashville that's you know mm-hmm. entrenched and powerful, mm-hmm. um, and I think there's a lot of. We can talk about investments and gentrification and the way cities evolve, but um, there's a lot that concerns me. Um, but I also found a, a lot of people who uh, would become partners in uh, collaborative thinking about what the average Joe should do about, you know, the systems of, of racism and inequality that still plague our city. And so I've made really, I've found really uh, fabulous partners in that kind of work. That's great. And I know you have, and we're going to talk about those in a minute, but talk about the resistance. So here you are, this native white girl from the farm in East Tennessee, and, um, you go off to Miami and you come back and are you, did people see you as raging feminist or (laughs) what was the, what was the feedback that you got? Um, yeah, I mean, all of the above. And that's Mm -hmm. why I'd, I'd, you know, half jokingly, half very seriously talk about my like deep relationship and understanding from a young age with intersectionality. Mm, That's great. Um, and I've always lived in those spaces. So when, um, so when we moved back here, the cultural, norms of Christianity, of femaleness, Mm. of motherhood, Mm. um, of whiteness, um, are, are very entrenched and Mm. very powerful in Mm. the circles that I stumbled into early on. And I've changed some of those circles, but that's sort of where we first landed here. Those, those structures were very much in place, even if they're not acknowledged or talked about. And talk about that for a second, because I've run into this a lot lately. I know other people have. I think you and I are probably more on the same page than maybe someone else you might uh, on the opposite side. But when you begin to talk about these things and you begin to acknowledge that they're real and you begin to to call them out and at least say, I see this in my own life. We need to see this in, other, the, in, in each other. And when you begin to talk about the things that you just said about um, being a, a, a white, uh, privileged um Christian Southern man, when you start to talk and say those things, 
And what you're really doing is you're calling out racisms and racism and and these these systems in our own hearts and our own minds. Um, but the people that resist that you're addressing it to begin to point back and say, "Why do you pull the race card? And mm-hmm. why are you talking about racism? And how do you deal with that? What's the what's the best way to deal with that? It's almost like I'm trying to point out your racism." And you're calling me a racist for pointing out your racism. It's <laughs> yeah. like, why do you, this isn't about racism. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It is, it's so frustrating. And it's been one of the central sort of um, time sucks of my last <laughs> five years, I would say. Because the response is, I'm not racist. Why are you, why are you bringing that up? <laughs> right, right. Um, and part of that, I think you just nailed it, is that nobody wants to be Racist. Part of it, my way of coming to think about this has, has sort of centered around two things. One is that a lot of it is due to so much ignorance. And I don't say that in a pejorative or sort of demeaning way. I mean that we literally don't spend time with people from different races in Nashville very much mm-hmm. unless you really try to. And so it is very difficult to to have that sort of baseline human empathy to understand what it's really like to grow up in another person's skin. Mm. Most of us have a deficit there. And so if, if, for instance, you spend time with a white person who doesn't spend a lot of time with a person of color um, and you say, I don't, can you imagine what it would be like to, to be a person of color applying for this job or mm-hmm. to walk into this church or, you know, mm-hmm. and they, for very good reason, because it's based on their own experience, would say, who cares what color they are, right? I, I would just live my life. I'm colorblind, like that sort of thinking. Um, but to me, that really signifies a, a vast ignorance about what it's like to, to live in someone else's skin. I, I do a lot of training and teaching and educating on privilege, on prejudice, on racism, on power, on defensiveness, on how, how, how all these things work in the church and outside the church. Um, and one of, the, one of the most telling things that I've ever walked away with is to, to know that consistently at, at every single event, um, the women of color will say, we talk about race every single day in our house. We talk about what it means to be a person of color. We talk about the dignity that's there. We talk about the legacies of strength and lament and resistance and patience and long-suffering and power and collaboration and generosity that is very much alive and well in in the African-American community. But we also talk about the subtle racism, the ways to navigate places, how to keep yourself safe how to respond well, what to do with various unacknowledged white power that you encounter. So families of color talk about this all mm. the time, not because they're addicted to, to victimhood or because they just uh, are, you know, can't get over their color, but because they have to. It's, mm. it's responsible parenting and humaning to talk about these things. Right. The white women who, who come to our events and who sort of I've worked with who – obviously opt in to want to at least have this conversation, you know, so they're already sort of leaning toward, there might be more to this story than I realized before. Um, They will say, this is the only time I ever talk about this. Mm. I never talk about race. Mm. I never, you know, it's not a part of my, and so part of that is privilege. And part of that is, is our environments and our communities and how we sort of self-select. But it's also, it, it gets at the tension that comes up when a person who I think about race all the time, and I'm speaking right now, me as Brandy Kellett. I, I'm always aware of it in every environment that I'm in. I'm thinking about the, the power that's unacknowledged, the privilege, the cultural norms, the, all of it. Um, and so for me to utter those words is very easy because it's always on the tip of my tongue because I'm always thinking about it. But for a person who never thinks about it, it can feel very jarring, and it's not socially acceptable in our society. Mm. It's not okay to talk about it. And so, and, and I think political sides have weaponized that Mm -hmm. and sort of made it even worse, you know, like it's a real affront, but a lot of it, um, too, I think is that part of the American story is this story of equality and this story of hard work and sort of Protestant work ethic and those values, you know, most of us hold those things really dear. And I know in my personal family, my parents are the the first to go to college, the first to sort of make it mm. in their lines. They worked really, really hard. And so they do feel personally affronted 
if someone says white privilege is a thing, you mm. should know that. Mm-hmm. Th- I mean, those are fighting words to them, you know, sure. because they feel defensive sure. and because they feel attacked and they feel like you're trying to take away what they've earned. And I completely is that, understand is that. Is that leftover colonialism? I think it is leftover colonialism in the sense that no one has ever challenged our narrative and how dare you try to tell mm-hmm. this story differently than I told this story. Like we came here, we left the motherland, we set up this country, we worked hard, and anyone who works hard and comes in legally and obeys the rules can pull themselves up by the bootstraps and do the same thing. Yes. It's a it's a weird mix, and it's really uninvestigated in some ways because we're most of us are deeply invested in our own stories of exceptionalism. Mm. Like, I am exceptional. I worked harder than everyone else. It's the independent American spirit. It is. The crazy thing is that we tend to share that with all the people who look like us or feel like us Mm -hmm. or feel like our people, which would require us to realize we're not exceptional. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? Um, At the same time, we reject that from any person who doesn't uh, sort of feed our own stories of exceptionalism. Right. 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 Or challenges that and says, uh, that's not really the way it happened. And Mm -hmm. wait a second. No, that's not true. That's fake news. Well, (laughs) right. And and again, we, it's very easy, even in our defense of these kinds of ideas to get back into binaries. And so that's part of the danger that we have to walk that road Mm -hmm. and go, nope, nope, nope. We're not going to reject any other narrative, but could we, could we share all the narratives and talk about where is your narrative erasing mine? Like, where is your narrative of sort of like white male privilegedness mm-hmm. shutting the door on my narrative of white female <laughs> privilegedness, mm-hmm. you know? Or where is your narrative of sort of Christianness shutting the door on my narrative of seeing the world as a Hindu or a Muslim, mm-hmm. right? Um, so these are parts of, and this really gets to the core issue too, I think, of racism, which racism is just sort of unacknowledged bias and prejudice matched with power. Mm. Right. And I don't mean power like, you know, the evil overlord power. I just mean our own deeply instinctive and now sort of sanctified in American culture need to protect our own. Mm -hmm. And so when I take my sort of unacknowledged bias and prejudice that is never confronted by a real person, but only spoken in sort of chambers Mm -hmm. of like mindedness, and I use that to... um, sort of shape and affect the way I make decisions, which is where my power comes in. So my hiring practices, Mm -hmm. if I've been told that, um, you know, people from a certain background or who speak with a certain accent will not do well with my clients, then it's, I can work myself into thinking it's my fiscal responsibility to keep people like that out of my business and only hire people who look like me because Mm -hmm. I know they'll be more successful. Right. Right. So that's where we're taking our sort of unacknowledged or maybe acknowledged bias, matching it with our power. And that ends up leading to systems of racism Mm. and exclusion. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about in this context is when you get into this extreme tribalism and so many times we get into that, we don't even realize we're doing it. Um, I have found that you can't talk or reason someone out of that. It has to be experienced. It's something that has to be done to you. And I think the biggest way to shock yourself out of it is to go travel to another country and spend time with people. Mm -hmm. That's one of the biggest ways. Or move and go live in a big city like you did. Mm -hmm. It will shock you out of it. And you'll have be forced to sit down at restaurants and coffee shops with friends that came from different parts of the world that see things very differently, mm-hmm. don't have the same politics, don't share the same worldviews. But then you realize, oh, these people aren't as evil and as bad as I thought they were. And mm-hmm. I was told that they were. They're actually more like, I kind of like them. And we like the same things. And I can learn something from them. So it's not something that you can argue someone into, right? Yeah, I think you're right on there. I think the... One of one of my laments about society is our seeming inability to sort of think metacognitively, which is just to think about the way we think, you know, mm-hmm. to think about the way we form things, to think about the way cultural norms are built and how they have power. And they're really based on nothing often, you know, but they become our Bible of sort of how we live. Um, and I think that's right. I think you do have to sort of experience it to get out of it. Um, I joke all the time that inertia is my greatest fear that I like lie in bed at night 
terrified that inertia is making decisions for me (laughs) instead of me getting to make my own choices, you know, Um, especially as a parent and a person who pays a mortgage. Um, But I, at the same time, I think the best way to live differently is to actually live differently, Mm. right? We can think, we do all these mental gymnastics of like, I'm going to recycle more and that means I'm different than the other people who don't recycle, you know, and that's great. Recycle. I'm a huge fan. Um, But at the same time, sometimes the best way to actually begin to decide what you care about and what you value and what you're willing to sacrifice for means Mm -hmm. you're going to be making very different choices than your friends make. Mm, Right. That's good. Or that you, I mean, sometimes my brother sort of derides me and says, the reason you feel so lonely and isolated sometimes in your community is that you've chosen really terrible friends who <laughs> see the world, you know, very different ways than you do. Um, oh, wow. But again, the part of my baseline thinking, though, as I try to think metacognitively, is to say, no, I'm not going to demonize people who are making very different choices than I make just because they make those choices. I'm going to lean in, and, and that is sort of the place we've positioned ourselves. My husband and I are often, like, the only ones who you know, go to a thing who look the way we look or who think Mm -hmm. the way we think or who educate our kids the way we educate our kids or who spend our money the way we spend our money, you know, the, and we have grown to have more comfort in that discomfort, Mm -hmm. which I think to your earlier point, you can't just snap yourself out of it. You can't argue your way out of it. You have to actually experience it. I find, I find that it's human nature to double down Mm -hmm. when confronted with it. Yeah, and I think there's two reasons for that. One is that often we are arguing with people or encountering people who have a very different sourcing of knowledge than we do. Like often we just, we have belief systems that are based on vapor that are not, we we don't educate ourselves, we don't read enough, we don't think enough, you know, and I'm obviously partial to reading. Um, But I think that we could have more nuanced conversations if we read more about different perspectives. Um, But then I also think defensiveness kills relationships and defensiveness mm. kills collaboration. And yes. as soon as you f- the key though is not to never feel defensive. We're all going to feel that way. The key that I'm learning is to notice it, see it, name it. <laughs> I feel defensive, you mm-hmm. know? Oh, I oh gosh, that feels kind of like attacking to mm-hmm. me. I'm sure that's not what you meant. Can we talk about it? Right? Mm-hmm. So it's to name it and stay at the table. Like right. keep your seat mm-hmm. even when you feel uncomfortable. And, and defensive and check it. It will take all the power in the room every if you don't if you don't acknowledge it. You know, um, the other thing I think though that that's that's really key. And I know we want to move on, but I want to throw this in sure. is that it's not just being around other types of people, moving to another country, living in a big city, like having multicultural experiences. It's telling yourselves the stories of those multicultural mm, experiences. That's good. Because our addiction to exceptionalizing people and ourselves is so strong and it's so normed that mm-hmm. we don't even see it. And so mm. you might have a friend who is from a different faith background or a different country or, you know, and you love that friend and you do anything for him and you'd give him the shirt off your back or you'd get a bat for him, you defend him in court, whatever they need, you know, but you can still in your brain, you exceptionalize that friend and you still demonize the whole country he comes mm-hmm. from. Right? Exactly. And so we have to tell ourselves the stories of, oh, maybe I got it wrong. Like maybe the assumptions I made about that whole people group Maybe my friend is actually indicative. Yeah, maybe they're all like that. Like. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Imagine that. Yeah, yeah. That that's interesting. Um, what do you What do you say to to the person who says, you know, I like my tribe, and I don't think there's anything wrong with it, and that's where I find myself, and I had no control over where I was born and who my family is, and I don't and. And I can respect and love other people, but I still love my tribe. Mm-hmm. What do you say to someone like that? I, I would say that I you know, respect their perspective and where they're coming from. And that in my own sort of my personal experience that um, I like some of the greatest relationships and learning in my life have come from people outside my tribe. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I would not try to convince them on the like benefits of moving outside your tribe. But I would come to say like... I have learned that my own worldview and sort of way of thinking about uh, the universe was really limited when I when I took most of my information from people who shared mm. a lot of core experiences with me, and that um, so I would say that I would also say that there is a way to 
embrace and love the belonging that you've been given Mm -hmm. and the tribe of people that you care about. Um, and to think about how you can use that to bring your story to a bigger story. Yeah. And expand the welcome for others. Mm -hmm. Right. Like if, I think if part, I think you can love your tribe. If part of your tribe's identity though, is that you're not those other people, Mm. then I would say that there's a toxic strain in your tribe Mm -hmm. that needs to be brought out to light. Mm -hmm. That's dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Um, you, you mentioned your kids earlier, and we don't want to get into this in too de- too de- too much detail. But um, you decided to take even take what you believed into that, and you decided to adopt, and you have a daughter of color. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about that. What was that experience like? It has been again. I think in the same way that when I think about professional spaces in my sort of academic career, and how I am very aware that that people like me can stomp into this place without realizing all the nuance there and the erasing that often happens to other voices. Um, I feel similarly about that um, when I think about adopting transracially in Nashville. Uh, There are pockets of Nashville that have tons of white families who adopt children of color. And um, I struggle with that in lots of ways. Of course, everyone wants, again, we exceptionalize ourselves. You want your story to be different than everyone else's story. Um, But for me, this is the greatest sort of challenge that we have to get right in our family's narrative. And so Mm. it is one of my greatest fears is that I will raise my daughter to be comfortable in white spaces and not comfortable in Mm. black spaces. Mm. And so that means that the, she needs to see me not just serving or speaking highly of or interacting well with other women of color in the world. She needs to see me asking advice of women of color Mm. in my kitchen over coffee. Mm. She needs to see me actually valuing people who look like her in the world, not just not fearing them, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, one of the most important choices in deciding to be open to adopting transracially was how how much change are we willing to commit to as a family? Mm. How much... How much will we allow this to do this thing well, to love and honor her legacy and where she comes from? How can we make sure that our lives reflect the kind of world that we want her to grow up in, right? And Mm so uh, for us, it was not just a choice to adopt a child. It was a choice to change and really consistently evaluate the way uh, we spend time, who our friends are, where our kids go to school, our kids all go... You know, we moved her big brother into a school where he was a racial minority so that she could follow him into Mm. a school where she could be a racial majority. Um, We are very much committed to education and all that sort of thing. Um, And one of the most important things that that we've um, that we're committed to is to spending time with her mom and dad throughout her life. And Mm. so. We go visit her mom three or four times a year um, and we want her to love her and to spend time with her. And as she gets older and her birth mom and I have talked about things, you know, we acknowledge that this is so incredibly painful and difficult. And I thank her for opening herself up to us and to her daughter that she can still spend time with her. And I've said if the greatest thing that you can give her as she grows up is access to you. Mm. Like, I know it's painful. I know it's hard. It's scary as hell for me mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. But could we get to a place where, um, when she has those, you know, impossible questions that she might hate me for, or she might hate you for that she can call you and ask you, mm. you know, that's great. or she can come, you know, ask me. That's great. And what is that dynamic? And I know your other kids love her, but what are those, um, what are those opportunities and what are those teaching moments and what are those discussions that it has afforded in your life uh, with your children? So I would say that we were a family who were already having lots of those conversations with our kids. Mm-hmm. And so it was so, very natural. So that was very natural. Um, the thing that I've begun to notice recently is that we have become sort of like a a metaphor for some families around us maybe whose children come home and have heard a a racist joke, you know, from their school. And so we've, we've had some white friends Mm. say, um, now we look at them and say, would you say that to one of the Kellets? Mm. Like, would you be comfortable telling that joke? You know? And so I feel really ambivalently about that in some ways it's, it's honoring and it's like, 
I believe that in these in the work of racial reconciliation and improving um, equity kind of in our society, we have to give people lots of on ramps. Mm-hmm. Right. There's yes. not just one way like, you know, I'm on cruise control going 85 miles an hour because mm. I think it's the only way to live. But somebody else has never even thought about it. And so if if the on ramp for them to start to think about the way we speak culturally without meaning to uh, can be to say, hey, I think maybe that joke is not okay to mm. say. Right. Mm. And I've never thought that before because I've never loved a person of color before. But now mm. I do, even if she's embedded in a white family. And it's made me question the way I think and what I'm, what I'm okay with, mm. you know? And that's, that's one other point back to this bigger conversation we're having is that it takes a ton of courage right. to be the person to speak up and yeah. say, hey, I'm actually not okay with that, mm-hmm. right? Sure. The, and part Especially of that when is, you're already in your tribe. Yes, right. And that's part of, that is one of the biggest indicators that I see of the sort of cultural norming of racialized thinking, because it's so easy to say in an environment where a guy tells an off-color joke about women or about race or about, you know, immigration, um, the person who speaks up to him becomes the asshole who ruined the party, Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Not the guy who said the offensive thing. That's right? right. And so how can we, can we notice that, A, like mm-hmm. can we be meta, mm-hmm. meta for just a second and pay attention to that? And then B, can we think about ways to confront that either gently or with a blowtorch, you know, mm-hmm. like depending right. on the rhythm, <laughs> um, and in a way that allows that person to maybe save some dignity and invites mm-hmm. him into a different yeah, way of thinking, absolutely. right? Like there's no, there's no need to shame necessarily. And yet... Our kids need to see us going to bat Mm -hmm. for stuff that matters, you Mm -hmm. know? And for me in particular, for obvious reasons, because of the racial makeup of my family, I'm going to go to bat for that stuff every time, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, and and, and in a culture and an environment that seems to be more and more rewarding the opposite of that, of saying, um, you know, it's okay to to be part of a tribe and it's bad to to not be part of a tribe in, in many instances. It's really hard for our kids, but I do believe um, I am an optimist in this way and, and kind of contrarian is that I do believe we will rise to it. And I think that what we are seeing in our country today and in the world um, are the very difficult, painful birth pains of a shift in mm. people's awareness. And because we're fastly, quickly growing with the Internet, with everything, with uh, multiculturalism with the speed at which things we have to shift and change. Mm-hmm. We, this can't sustain, um, this extreme tribalism. And so it's very painful that, that, at that death and people who still want to hold on to that. Mm-hmm. But I do think it's, it, it's a sign. Um, the way that I look at it is people, uh, I've heard people say, well, you know, it's getting worse, it's not getting better. It's never going to change. And I'm saying, well, that's, that's the sign that it is changing. It's it's a problem when it's under the cover and it, no one talks about it and everybody's nice on the surface to each other. That's when it's a problem mm-hmm. because you never really acknowledge. At least it's being called out and at least pe- people you know where people stand. Mm-hmm. Um, now I believe as human beings, as a human race, uh, we've survived this long. We'll continue to push forward and progress. I don't know what you feel about that. I think that is a beautiful perspective, and I've heard you articulate something like that before. I think the, um, the challenge before us now mm-hmm. is to... Um, and, and well, we have lots of challenges. I would say that the, the thing that I'm trying to tackle in my own sphere of influence and work and sort of in the way that I think and write and speak and talk um, is to help people articulate their discomfort with the change in society and recognize it for what it is and then stop mm. and think before they take their next action, mm. right? So an easy low-hanging fruit is that there are people pretty divided on you politically correct speech is stupid and dumb and you know Mm -hmm. too gentle and it's too much work and people need to get over it and stop having their feelings hurt all the time Mm -hmm. um the 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 politically correct speech is part of the problem Mm -hmm. and then a whole nother group of people who believe that words matter (laughs) and that we they symbolize and signify the way that we dehumanize and Mm -hmm. belittle and demean others and that uh 
that they're damaging, right? Mm-hmm. And so that it's not being politically correct to speak about someone else with dignity and honor. It's actually like, especially as a believer, it's referencing like the image of God that's in them, right? right? And so right. it is no no high hill for me to have to think about the way I refer to you, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously I'm sort of on that side. Um, but as we think about that, what I've tried to do is to is to help people who might feel kind of outraged that like, what are you saying that I can't say what I've always said about this um, is to help them instead of demonizing that person for using a racial slur or for calling me sweetie or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. like on any side of the, the line there, um, instead of demeaning them for using that kind of language is to say... I know. And it's got to feel super alienating that you're not allowed to call like a random woman you don't know sweetie anymore. But let me Mm. help you understand how it feels from my perspective Mm -hmm. when I hear that. Right. And again, then the next enemy that pops up is defensiveness because that's Mm -hmm. real uncomfortable (laughs) and they might feel called out. But it's this I think it's this slow process of helping people understand the way that language matters, the way that our assumptions matter, the power that these assumptions have over us, Mm. you know, the norms that they set that we don't even recognize. And so I me being sort of on the left of things here really does feel like I want to approach people who are more on the right with like kindness and with Mm. understanding and empathy also and just say, it must feel terrifying to you to, to do anything. Everything feels so changed. And the world that you grew up in literally doesn't exist anymore. It's all so different now. It's gotta be terrifying. Absolutely. But is, is, is the best option and the best path forward for you really to like try to blow the whole thing up mm-hmm. and to double down? And to right. your point, that's what we're seeing. Right. Like there is half the country is doubling down on like hateful meanness. Right. Um, and I hope that, that that has a half-life. I hope it's not going to sustain itself. Yeah, it can't. Um, I don't believe it can. But I think all these, that's why, again, we have to have two different approaches. One is the narratives, the interaction, the like learning to listen well, mm-hmm. learning to check our defensiveness, learning to name our biases, like all this kind of stuff that you and mm-hmm. I are doing right now. The other thing, though, that we have to do is to... Uh, attack and change and transform the systems that uphold all this Mm. sort of thing, right? Mm. Absolutely. It's one thing to talk about, you know, race and the way that we talk about race. It's another thing to protect people's voting rights, Mm -hmm. right? To make sure people can, you know, have a full-time job and pay for their families. Like, so the, I think we have to have systemic work, which means you have to get your hands dirty and you have to get involved politically and you have to speak up and speak out for things you care about. And then we also have to do this small work of like sitting at the kitchen table and learning to listen well. Mm, That's beautiful. How do people find you and get in touch with you if they have questions, they want to read your blog, they want to learn about things you're doing? How do people get in touch with you? So the easiest way is to go to the website, expandyourus.com, and uh, to look at uh, my contact information there, or expandyourus at gmail.com will also get you to me. And that's sort of the um, way that I think about the best path forward to end on a hopeful note. I do believe that each of us is already, as you've mentioned several times, we're really good at belonging to tribes and picking our tribes. We're already really good at choosing our us. Mm-hmm. How can we begin to expand, expand us. that us I so that, that we, you know, learn to go to bat for different kinds of so people. So expanding our us.com expand your us, expand your us.com yep. expand your us.com. Where you can learn more about Brandy, get in touch with her, and is there a book forthcoming on all of this? We'll see. <laughs> I'm always writing. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you for this time. It's been so good. I felt like we're just scratching the surface. Who knows? Maybe we'll do a part two here soon. Thanks for having me, Bob. Thanks for coming on. Thanks.